As you take your copy of God's Word, make your way to the book of James, if you would. Um, We are making our way through this book that has unbridled wisdom, perfect wisdom for us in our day-to-day living. And um, we're asking God as we walk through it, chapter and verse, that He would touch our hearts by the eternal truth that's held in the Word of God. Last week, let me take a minute to recap where we've been. Last week, um, at the end of chapter 1, we heard James uh, and his concern that we be doers of the Word. That we be doers of the Word and not hearers only. Because when we're just hearers and not doers, we are deceiving ourselves. We deceive ourselves when we think that we hear a sermon and we go away and not apply the Word of God. We deceive ourselves. I think it's very easy. I would submit to you that I'm one who finds it very easy to deceive myself because I think that just by the hearing of the Word that that I'm growing, that I'm applying, when in fact at times that is not the case. So he says, be doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Previous to that, he had said that, hey, receive the implanted word with, with meekness. Um, and, he, and so he instructs our hearts to, to receive the word in such a way that it, it doesn't just kind of land on us softly, but that it, it comes and, and we receive it like, like it's from the Lord. And, and then we'll do it and walk in it. Because hearing, this is the summary of last week. Hearing without doing is nothing. Hearing without doing is, is nothing. If we hear God's word, but we don't do it, then it doesn't do us any functional good. Yet there is this great promise in the passage that we read last week, and I want to read it to you. He says, he, he says the promise of the word is in the doing of it. So he says, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. This morning, I'd like to be blessed by God in the doing of the word. I, I believe you're here for, for the purposes of worship because you desire similarly to be blessed in the doing of the word of God. Well, God's going to help us as we incline our hearts to him today. Um, at the end of last week, James went on to illustrate three ways that if we're paying attention to the word of God, three fruits that will be evident in our hearts. Fruit number one we'll be able to control our tongue. And, and we talked together about how, how, my goodness, we need every bit of help in this area because none of us controls our tongue perfectly. Secondly, he said, if, if God's love is in you and if you are obeying the word of God, then, then you'll be caring for others in need. You'll, you'll take care of those in need. And then thirdly, the third fruit that will come out of us if we're allowing the word to really resonate in our hearts, then that means we will live holy lives. What what does it mean to live a holy life? It means to live according to God's word, not to the standards of the world around us. To live, he says, unstained by the world. Now, the reason I'm pointing all this out is because we're at a turning point in the book of James. It it has five chapters, and chapter one is about our relationship to God. And from here on out, now, it's the application of that relationship to God that we hear about in chapter 1. So, so what is chapter 2 about? It's about how we relate with one another. So those three things that he said at the end of chapter 1, they, they're like 
the bookmarks for the rest of the book. You know, chapter two is about how we treat one another. Chapter three, a whole chapter about the tongue. Chapter four, it's about worldliness and, and keeping yourself unstained from the world. So, so it's not the only things he talks about, but basically those are the three major topics that James goes after in this book because he's saying, listen, if we say that we believe God, if we say that we love God and yet don't control our tongue, we don't care about people who are in need, and we don't keep ourselves unstained from the world, then you are in peril. That's what he says. You're in peril. Because faith without works is dead. Hearing without doing is nothing. So James writes to extrapolate and, and help us to see how these things all fit together. This is a good word this morning. We need to hear this word. I need to hear this word. And so we're reading in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. This is the holy, inspired, perfect counsel of God. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and they the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love the Lord, excuse me, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Lord, we need your help this morning as we attend to your word. Lord, there's a lot packed in these 13 verses and, and we won't even be able to get to all of it sufficiently. Um, there's so much here. But I pray now first for my own heart and then for the hearts of my friends here, your body that's present. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts to your word this morning, that we would be impacted by its truth, that, that its truth would not just be heard, but taken into effect in our hearts 
and in our lives. And so we pray to that end, Lord, help us. We're easily distractible. There's a big game going on today. There's a lot of things that can distract us. Lord, help us to hear your word today and help us by your grace to respond to your word in such a way that would bring you honor and glory by the way that we treat those around us. Lord, that's a huge prayer, but we ask for that in Jesus' name. And all the church said, amen. May it be so. Yes, a huge game today. We all know the Eagles are going to be victorious. And now that we have that uh, under our feet, let's move on. Yes, let's move on. So two points this morning. One, we're going to stay there for a lot of the time. The second one, we'll get to it. But here's the main point of, uh, of the first section of this passage. Number one, partiality is sin against the God of glory. That's how I would summarize part of the message here. Partiality is sin against the God of glory. Look at verse 1. Keep your Bible open with, if you would today because we're just going to go back to the text again and again and again. My brothers, verse 1, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So James writing with, again, a pastor's heart to these people that he loves, he, he commonly pauses and says, my dearly beloved, my beloved brothers, he loves these people, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So let's begin with a definition this morning. What is partiality? Partiality is judging or showing favoritism based on external appearance. It's treating a person depending upon how you judge them by certain factors. It's not treating each person equally. It's particularly dishonoring to the Lord when we show partiality because every person, every person, regardless of who they are, where they come from, every person has been created in the image of God and should therefore be treated with dignity and respect and with honor. And when we treat people with partiality, when we judge them on external appearances, we are not only dishonoring them as individuals, we are dishonoring the God who created them as people with dignity and worth and value before Him. So, partiality is a sin. God's children are called to reflect God's character. And God's not partial, so neither should we be partial. Listen to Moses' description of God in the Old Testament. He says it this way, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. One might think that James, in his writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was thinking of this exact passage when he was extrapolating out the fruits of what it looks like to walk with God because it's going to mirror God's heart. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner. 
giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Listen to Peter in the New Testament if you needed more evidence that God does not show partiality. He says it very simply, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. This is when he's responding to the work of God in bringing in the Gentiles as well as the Jews into the kingdom when he saw the vision of of the four corners coming together and, and God's expanding kingdom. He says, truly, I understand, God shows no partiality. And if God is not partial to people, then neither should the people who bear his name be partial as well. If God is not partial, nor should we be. Listen to this word from Leviticus. Uh, These are instructions for God's people. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. Now why is this again recorded in Scripture? Because God wants us to know how He intends for His people to reflect His character in His world. His people reflecting His character in His world. There's no partiality with God. There should be, therefore, no partiality with God's people. And James goes ahead and illustrates, perhaps from a very live example, he illustrates this for us in verses 2-4. to So a well-dressed man comes into the meeting. He's got a a gold ring. Now, I have a gold ring this morning. He's got a gold ring on his finger and he's dressed in fine, clean clothing and he gets one of the best seats in the house. A poor man enters with shabby clothing, perhaps because maybe it's the only clothing that he has. We don't know this, but perhaps uh, the odors coming from these two gentlemen might be a little bit different because of their life situations. We don't know. But here's the assumption. The assumption is that the well-dressed man is going to somehow benefit the church. And so the people in the church are like, oh, here, have, have a great seat. And the assumption is that there's nothing that this shabbily dressed man is going to bring to bear. And so it's like, oh, you stand back there. Or, or, or notice when it says, you sit at my feet, which, is, which sounds to me like um, a connotation of servitude. Like, yeah, you can sit at my feet. The partiality that's shown here is downright sinful and condemned by James. How wrong this is in the sight of God when they do this or when we do this. This is why partiality, showing partiality, is always sinful. It's never right because it leads to sinful judgment, uh, James says in verse 9. It's precipitated by evil thoughts. He says it right in verse 4. Let's look at verse 4 again. He says, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges, look at the next three words, with evil thoughts? So we don't have the ability to, in showing partiality, to judge without evil thoughts. Therefore, partiality is always wrong. It's always wrong. Sinful. What we are doing when we show partiality is we're setting ourselves up as the judge 
So we judge, you know, like, oh, you look like a person that's okay. Come on in. Or, you know, I'm not so sure about you. The way you look, the way I perceive how you might benefit me, I'm not so sure. So I'm going to put you to the side. It's wrong. It should never happen when God's people are interacting with other people. God's the only one who sees the heart. And God's the only one he's called to judge. And he will judge with justice and equity. And he always does what's right. Partiality, we know this. Partiality, sadly, has taken grievous forms in the history of the world. Partiality has produced great evil. Things like slavery and genocide and the horrific mistreatment of others. How does that happen? The roots are partiality. Judging with evil thoughts. And these are grievous sins before God and utterly inconsistent with the character and the nature of God. Listen to theologian Douglas Moo. He says, discriminating against people, whether on the basis of their dress, nationality, social class, or race, is a clear violation of the unbounded love to which Jesus calls us. He's saying this, look, if, if you've received mercy from Christ, if, if though you are guilty before God, and he would be right to condemn you to hell, if you have received mercy from God, to then turn and treat somebody else without mercy, to treat them with partiality in this context, is utterly and totally inconsistent. So, dear friends, anytime we treat another person with partiality, it is, it is sin. And so I, I think about us as a church body, and I say to, to myself and I say to us, let us, dear brothers and sisters, forsake any form of partiality whatsoever. Now here's, I think, our temptation on Super Bowl Sunday. I, here's what I think uh, my temptation is and our temptation. We can, we can think about the heinous sins that have been occurred in the world uh, due to the sin of partiality. What, some of those sins I just mentioned a moment ago. And, and I think we can kind of excuse ourselves because we're like, oh, well, we're not doing that. We're not, we're not abusing or mistreating people. And yet the sin of partiality can be very subtle. It can take forms that we don't necessarily think about. It can come in ways like perhaps we're meeting someone and we're aware that their education level is, may not be the same as ours or their income level may not be the same as ours or their social status may not measure up to what we think. And, and we're not going to perhaps do what what is done here. We're not going to say, hey, go sit in the back. We may not do that. But there may be part of our hearts that just pulls away from people and like pulls back and doesn't show them the kind of love that God has shown to us. Do you see? I don't want any of us, again, including myself, I don't want any of us to feel comfortable here this morning saying like, oh, this sin of partiality, I don't do that. I don't tell people where to sit. Great. But is there any pattern? Is there any way 
in our hearts where we do demonstrate a lack of love for people through this particular sin. Dear church, let's really take time to evaluate our hearts. You know, we tend to be gravitating toward people that we like, that people that are like us. And when we encounter someone perhaps from another nation, perhaps someone who doesn't speak the same language as we do, perhaps from a, a situation that, that makes us not so inclined toward them, that's where the rubber meets the road. That's where our Christian faith rises or falls. Are we going to love this person with impartial love? Or are we going to gently pull away from them? Not be so obvious, but, but just pull away from them and say, yeah, yeah, uh, you know, meet some folks over there. They'll be glad to talk with you. See, we need to watch our own hearts, dear friends. It's often not going to be as obvious as James is illustrating. And James has a real concern for the people to whom he writes. And therefore, God has real concern for the people whom hear the word now this morning that if we show partiality, we've lost sight of something, right? If you and I show partiality to other people, we've lost sight temporarily, we've lost sight of the gospel. At the foot of the cross, who stands tall? No one. At the foot of the cross, it's all people in the world, sinners all, looking up to the cross for mercy. And when we show partiality to people, we've removed ourselves from the foot of the cross. We've forgotten the grace of the gospel that first impacted our hearts. We've forgotten it. And we're functioning in a way to say, hey, I'm a little bit better than you. You don't quite measure up to me, so I'm going to treat you in the way that I judge that you should be treated. And that, dear friends, is sin. It's wrong. We're judging others with evil thoughts. This is what James is saying to us. And so, by way of application, just briefly here for a moment, would you be willing this morning to ask the Lord, Lord, is there any way, is there any corner of my heart, any pocket within me where I am treating people with that kind of partiality? Is there any way where I'm holding myself back from some because of some external reasons that is displeasing to you? I think that would honor God if we would, in sincerity of heart, be able to ask that question before the Lord. And we can trust that that where God wants to bring His light to us by the Holy Spirit, He will bring things to light. Because you know what? I want us to be able to confess any known sin and then... And then apply the gospel to it and walk forward. So, so where there may be sin in our hearts, the Lord wants to forgive us and move us forward in, in abounding love, not just for one another in the church, but abounding love for every single person that we meet. That's, I believe, God's heart for us this morning. James goes on to address God's heart in relationship to the poor. Let me read verse 5. Look there in your Bible if you would. Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in the faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? So let me uh, attempt to interpret this verse 
by first saying what James is not declaring. He's not saying that God only loves the poor of the world. He's not saying that God is categorically opposed to those who are wealthy or to those who are rich. For for that to be so, God would have had to have been opposed to people like Abraham and Job and Solomon and many others in the Old Testament times. So so God was not opposed to them. He in fact he was the one who gave them their wealth. So God is not categorically opposed to those who are rich. What is James saying? He's saying that God's heart is inclined to help those who find themselves in a place of need. It's clearly exemplified by the example of Christ. Remember, at the outset of Jesus' ministry, you know, he he lived for 30 years, um, and then somewhere right around age 30, he began three plus years of ministry, and he went up to the temple to begin his ministry. And out of all the texts that Jesus could have chosen to read to describe the ministry which was about to begin in a particular way, this is the text that Jesus himself, God's Son, chose to proclaim. He said this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Um, Jesus himself was quoting Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. This was the description of the ministry of Christ. Listen to the folks that he he described. He's, He's come to proclaim good news to the poor, the captives, the blind, the oppressed. Do you get a picture there of who he's after? It doesn't mean he neglected the wealthy. That's not true. Jesus loves every person. But there is something about those who are poor in the eyes of this world. They, They have perhaps a greater inclination to put their hope not in this world, but in the world to come. Because if their hope is only in this world, they could be very discouraged because of their situation. But there's a greater inclination to locate their hope in the world to come. The poor, this is true, the poor are less clouded by the entrapments of wealth and the temporary sense of security that wealth can bring which may perhaps at times incline their hearts in such a way as to hear the good news differently than those who are wealthy. Listen to the Apostle Paul and how he describes the calling. He said, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Do you see what James is saying? He's saying that God loves to help those who recognize their sense of need. There's a reason that Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? 
because they see their need readily and they are positioned to respond to the Lord. Now, again, to be completely clear, there are some that are poor in this world who repudiate Christ and and want to have nothing to do with Christ. And there are some wealthy in the world that love Christ with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. So this isn't one versus the other because at the foot of the cross, we are all in the same place. And so God is inclined to proclaim His hope and proclaim the goodness of the Gospel to all. James, uh, finally, in this one last verse in this section, he, he says in verse 6, But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? He's kind of saying this. Like, it's kind of counterintuitive to bring that rich person in and, and give them the good seed and, and fawn over them because isn't it the rich person who's dragging you into court? What's happening in this day, in the original context? It's that, that people were being oppressed by wealthy people who would bring them into court and extort money th- from them because at times the courts were in cahoots with the wealthy and so they would drag them into court uh, with false crimes and then extort money from them. That's what James is saying. Are, are, are the rich not the ones who do that? So why would you court the wealthy when they're the ones who are oppressing you and more than even oppressing you, they are they're blaspheming the name that you love. So it makes no sense to court the rich but rather to be impartial in all things. So here's, before we move on to the second point, here's the question again I want to pose before you this morning. As you evaluate your own heart, as you think about in, your, in the Rolodex of your mind, the different people that come into your life day in and day out, maybe somebody at work, somebody at school, somebody that, that you have real trouble with loving, and probably we all have somebody that might come to mind when we say that. Hopefully it's not the person seated next to you, but uh, from time to time it might be. Here's the thing. God intends that his people reflect his glory. That's why James says, my brothers, show no partiality to you uh, as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice there's There's a descriptor there at the end of verse 1. He calls him the Lord of glory. Now James does that very purposefully. What is he doing? He's reminding the dear people of God that the God that they serve is the Lord of glory and therefore is worthy and deserving of the glory that we give him by the way that we love our lives by the way that we love other people. So all of us in this room, we have the ability to either glorify God, bring honor to Him by the way that we treat other people, or we can discredit the glory of God by sinning and treating people with partiality. This is what he's saying. Dear people, in light of the glory of God and in light of the grace that He's given to you, Now let us go, having received the grace of God, and treat one another with impartiality. That we would love the person that we don't perhaps know 
or we don't perhaps feel really comfortable with, we would love them with the love that God has put in our hearts. We can't do it apart from Christ, right? We need His help. And this reminder is that God intends to help us so that we might love one another. Point number two, here, here we go. Uh, very simply, this next section, love your neighbor as yourself. Look at verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. So love is the royal law. Why does James call it the royal law? Uh, commentators are not exactly sure. Perhaps he called it the royal law. Uh, because it was given by the king of all, the king of the world. In Jesus' words, loving your neighbor as yourself is the summary of all of the law and the prophets, right? That's what he said. You know, what's the greatest commandment? Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. This is the royal law, the law of liberty. Because when God enables us, by his grace, to love other people, it sets us free, right? It sets us free to be able to love people who are drastically different from ourselves. It, it sets us free not only to love other people who are drastically different from us, it sets us free, hear this, friends, again, it sets us free to love our enemies. Like, it's, it's really nothing great if we love the people right around us who are a lot like us, it's nothing great to do. I mean, anybody does that. Today there will be parties in the USA for, for the Super Bowl and people will gather with their friends and you're like, oh, look how they love each other. Well, that's great, but it's not a big deal because you're just like one another. Real love comes when we can love our enemies. Real love comes when someone is mistreating us and we can love them nonetheless. Real love happens. God is particularly glorified when in the midst of mistreatment of one form or another, we can apply love. And only, only God helps us to love like that. So when we hear this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, we often think, well, you know, I have two neighbors uh, right, you know, my mom and dad on one side of my house and my kind, nice neighbors on the other side. It's like, okay, all right, check. I'm fulfilling that one. No, I'm not. Because everyone is my neighbor. Anyone who comes in contact with me is my neighbor. Do you hear it? Like, I'm convicted. I don't do this very well. I love partially at times. God is saying, if you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. I need help to do that well. And the Lord is here this morning because He wants to help us by His Holy Spirit to do this well. We struggle, don't we? We struggle to love people. We really struggle to love our enemies and God is here to help us show us the way look at verse 9 but if you show partiality you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors I love James style when we began the first 
Sunday that we began this series in the book of James, someone said to me, I love the book of James. It's my favorite book in the Bible because James doesn't beat around the bush. He just says it straight up and here's what he's doing. He cuts right to it. Partiality is sin and we are transgressors when we show partiality. Look then at verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. One of the theologians I was reading this week, his name is Kent Hughes. He writes a good, uh, a good commentary on this. And he described the law because James goes to such lengths to say, look, if, if you murder um, but don't commit adultery, you're still guilty of, of the law of God. And he says it this way, James sees the law as a seamless garment that when ripped in one place, it tears the whole garment. I thought that was helpful as a way to think about this. You know, we, we tend to be checklist people like, okay, did I do adultery? No. Did I murder anyone? No. Did I lie this week? No. And, and, and yet God clearly says if we're transgressing in any of these ways, we are guilty of sin. We are transgressors. Um, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Verse 12, so speak and so act then as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Now, let me make clear the gospel. By faith in Jesus Christ, by faith in him, believers are set free from the penalty of sin. Amen? There is no condemnation for those who are found in Jesus Christ. In other words, who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. No penalty, no condemnation. The gospel has set us free. However, it is a sobering thought, and this is why James introduces it here. It's a sobering thought to think that though there is there, therefore now no condemnation over Jeremy Bell, it's true that I will one day be judged as will you. By the Lord. I will be judged, as will you, by the Lord. And if we show partiality to others, then we will be judged according to that sin. There will be grace, of course, because it's not our performance. It could never be about our performance. But we will be judged by a standard of righteousness. And I believe what James is saying is he wants people like you and me to be motivated in our love by the fact that we will stand before God one day and answer to him how we love people. You and I will stand before God and answer to that. We will be judged under the law of liberty. We want to be people who are bearing fruit in keeping with repentance and and so he, he motivates us by, by reminding us, hey, you know, just keep in mind, you will be judged one day under this law of liberty. And so allow that to motivate your heart to, to serve your Lord in gladness and in joy. And then finally in verse 13, he says this, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Now, what does that mean? Let's read it again. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. It means that if you've demonstrated no mercy, it's evident that you have resisted 
the, God's offer of forgiveness. If you've not shown mercy by receiving what God has given to you, then mercy will not be shown to you on that judgment day. Think about this. Remember the story. Remember the story. Jesus was trying to illustrate um, the gift, the great gift of mercy in Matthew 18. And he told the story of a, of a servant who was owed, in essence, who owed another, in essence, $2 million. And he pleaded earnestly with his debtor, and the debtor said, okay, I'm going to forgive you of your sin, $2 million bucks, free to go. And what does he do? He walks out, finds someone who owes him $200, and has him thrown in jail until he could pay every last penny. And he said to that unmerciful servant, how wicked you are. You were just shown incredible mercy, and now, in turn, you go around and you show no mercy? Dear friends, as we think about our own hearts, and we keep our eyes focused on the gospel, when we remind ourselves of all of the mercy that we have received through the forgiveness of, Lord, of the Lord, now we have the ability upon receiving it afresh day by day. Chris mentioned we're gospel-centered people. That's what that means. Remembering what it is we once deserved and what we have been given. We, we allow that grace to shape us and enable us now to love those, even our enemies, who are difficult to love. God gives us the power to do it by His grace. Amen. God helps us by showering grace upon us so that we then can be a a messenger of grace to all the people in our lives, even, even our enemies. That's power. Nobody can do that apart from the power of of Christ. So, so let me draw us to a close now. I, I want to just offer a few thoughts by way of application. So how do we keep ourselves from being partial? How do we actually do this? I hope you're, in one sense, I hope you're a little bit overwhelmed by the sense of, wow, I, I really am partial at times. My heart is really on display. I really, I really don't always treat people with, with impartiality. And I, I hope that that some of the Spirit's work has brought some things to mind so that we can together forsake them. But how do we keep ourselves from, from being partial? Well, the first thing I would say is this. We keep from being partial by dwelling with the Lord, right? We're going to sing a song in a few moments, actually two songs, that just, number one, reminds us of the grace of God. We're going to sing Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. Because I need that reminder of all that God has done for me. And then we're going to sing a second song, Give Me Jesus. In the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. Because that's how we combat the sin of partiality in our hearts. That we walk with our Lord. That we remind ourselves of the gospel. That we keep our eyes fixed, not on the problems or on the problem people of our lives, but we keep our eyes fixed on the Lord who has been so gracious to us so that now we can forgive and dispense mercy to people who don't treat us well. 
we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who began it and the one who will carry it out to completion. And we look to him and we see his example. Alec Matier, he said this, our values, priorities, and activities must be governed by the definition of true glory displayed in the person, conduct, and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is he saying? He's like, look to Jesus. In all things, as we look to be impartial toward people, look to Jesus. Look at the one who was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Look to Jesus. Keep your eyes there. When the wind and the waves of unkind people are all around you and you're just aware, man, I want to respond. I want to respond. No, look to Christ. How how has He responded to you? How has He poured out grace upon you? And when you look to that Christ, when you look to His example, and when you ask Him, Lord, help me to love impartially, you know what He's going to do? He's going to help you. He's going to give you the grace to do it. He would never call you to something He doesn't intend to help you to do. And so He's going to help us, dear friends. Let's stand, would you, with me as we pray and ask God to do this work in our hearts. Lord, when Your Word illuminates our hearts and when we we look into the mirror of Your Word, we see ourselves more clearly for who we are. And we don't want to be like the man that James talks about in chapter 1 who looks into the mirror of the Word but then walks away and immediately forgets and doesn't actually apply the Word to his life and to his heart. But we want to be doers and not just hearers of the Word, Lord. And today we recognize that that all of us have a tendency to treat others with a degree of partiality. Those who are like us we may flock to, but those who are not like, like us we may we may run away from or back away from when you call us to go toward them. And so, Lord, we say, forgive us when we treat others with partiality because that is sin. Forgive us, Lord. And in the place of partiality, would you, dear Lord... Help us to be motivated by the mercy that we've been shown in Jesus Christ as we move toward people, all people, even those who would be our enemies. Help us move toward them in love because that's how you move toward your enemies, us. You move toward us in love. And so, Lord, we need your help. This is no easy thing. 
We need your help in order to do this. And so as we reflect on this, as we take some time to sing songs which remind us of the mercy that we've experienced, Lord, help us to be doers of this word. And we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit afresh even now as we confess and forsake sin, receive your forgiveness, and go from this place in a few minutes. Help us to love as you loved. Help us to see as you see. Help us to care as you care. And help us, Lord, to proclaim this hope that we have to every person we meet. This we pray and ask together in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.